have you here. Um, like I said, I know that there are many who are out and about, but it is great to have you here. It's always good to have our uh, uh, the reminder of our covenant children um, and the gift that they are to this particular body. And so um, I am glad to have uh, to be able to be here this morning. We are uh, not looking at Luke today. Last week we took away from Luke, and we're not going to look at Luke today or next uh, Sunday. I decided that we wouldn't look at the Luke in. Um, Easter story. We will instead are looking at the Gospel of Mark and how he tells the story of Palm Sunday and then next week Easter. And so this morning I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 11 verses 1 through 11. So I invite you to hear these words. When they, and that's Jesus and the disciples, were approaching Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village ahead of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. And as they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do pray that you would be with us this morning as we ponder this story that is known well by most of us. We pray that you would continue to illuminate our hearts, our minds, and our souls. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So this week I was reminded of kind of the challenge that occurs whenever you give a title to something. It's true in lots of things, but it's of course also very true when it comes to stories in Scripture. So one of the classic examples, of course, is what we will see in Luke chapter 15 when we get there, which is you know, the story of the prodigal son. That's usually how we title it, and that means that that's what we look for. That's mostly who we focus on is the prodigal son. But when you do so, you omit kind of the importance oftentimes of the father and even the older brother and what they might teach us as well. And this week we come into the problem again because typically we call this, as I just said, what's today? Palm Sunday. But of course, if you were only reading Mark, you would have no idea that it was Palm Sunday. I mean, he says something about branches, but we don't know for sure what kind of branches they are. And then, of course, he talks about the fact that they are throwing cloaks. So we could also call this Cloak Sunday 
doesn't quite have the ring to it, right? But you could call it Cloak Sunday, right? But we don't really think about that. We focus instead on palms. Or another name that this is oftentimes given is the triumphal entry. And so we tend to then just focus on the fact of Jesus marching into Jerusalem. And we don't see all that much else. Now, there's nothing wrong, of course, with focusing on palms. And there's nothing wrong with focusing on Jesus marching into Jerusalem What happens, though, is that at times we then are kind of blinded to everything else that is going on. And so this week, as I was kind of pondering this passage, I was asking myself, well, what else is going on that maybe we don't always look at quite as much? Uh, One of the things, of course, that we begin to see is the context of this particular passage. This is happening right before Passover, and it's happening as many are on a pilgrimage into Jerusalem. Thousands, some would suggest hundreds of thousands of people who every year would go into the pilgrimage. And all of a sudden, Jerusalem would begin to grow in size. And for many people, in fact, they only did this once in their lifetime. They only went into Jerusalem once. And so there's all this sense of of expectancy and excitement as they begin to go into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. I was thinking about pilgrimage of late, uh, partly because when I was in uh, Germany this past summer and uh, was in Freiburg, I took several hikes, and many of them uh, were on a path that's known as Jakob's Weg, which just means the way of St. James. And it's a route, perhaps many of you have heard of this, the more famous one is when you do the Camino de Santiago, or it's just called the Camino, and it's this pathway that you go and takes you into a city in Spain uh, and into a church where traditionally uh, it is understood that the uh, bones of the Apostle James uh, lie and state there at this particular church. And we as Protestants, we're not, we don't tend to be really big into pilgrimages. Uh, over the last few decades, there have been more of us uh, who who have done that, but the Roman Catholics are, are much larger into this. And one of the fascinating things about a pilgrimage is that what happens is that you put yourself in a very different physical space. And when you do that, it allows you to be in a different emotional space and even spiritual space. So you begin to be open to different things. You, you are disrupting your life, so to speak. And I think that that's actually really important. One of the ways that we sometimes say this around here is we call these these speed bumps in our lives. What is so easy to do is get in a particular rhythm of our lives. And we like rhythm. We like structure. And it can be good. We like to know what to expect. This is what we do in our lives. We have breakfast. We go to work. We have lunch. We have dinner. We put the kids to bed. Or we go to bed after watching a TV show. When spring comes, we go on. Spring break, this is what we do, right? And then we go back to work. And then when summer comes, we take a trip perhaps. And this is what happens. And that's all good and right. But what also begins to occur if we are not paying attention is we get into a stupor of sorts. We're not really paying attention to what's happening. And so we begin then to pay less attention to what's going on with the Lord in our midst. And so it is really wise in many ways to begin to intentionally put things in our lives. Sabbath should be one of those things. I've been reading a lot of books on pilgrimages. One of those is called The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry. It's a fictional 
take. And, and you have this older gentleman who's caught up again in this malaise of, of his marriage and the malaise of, a, of grief over his son and the malaise of older age. And he hears about a co-worker, an ex-co-worker who lives a, a several hundred miles away. And so he decides he wants to uh, mail her a letter because he's never actually just told her uh, thank you for something she had done. And so he walks out to the mailbox and he's going to put it in and then he just keeps walking. And he walks literally hundreds of miles so that he can hand deliver this note. And of course, as he's walking, he's having conversations and he's noticing that he's listening to people and he's listening to things and he's seeing things that he has never seen before because he decides to just keep walking. Now, I would not encourage you to go on a pilgrimage without telling your spouse as he did. But I do think that there is wisdom in intentionally putting yourself in these different situations in which you are then more aware of where God is at work. It doesn't always have to be pilgrimages. My wife and I are doing something this year where we are, uh, every month we are fasting something. Now these aren't big things that we're fasting. It doesn't need to be. But we fasted a couple months ago podcast, right? Which may not be a big deal to you, but man, it made running a lot more difficult. It made being in the car a lot more difficult, right? So we fasted that. I fasted having emails on my phone. It's just these small kinds of things. But what occurs, especially if it's something you regularly do, is that at just the time when you do that, you remember, no, no. And it, it, it changes the stupor of one's life enough to begin to pay attention. And so what you have here at this particular day is you have all of these pilgrims who have begun to make their way into Jerusalem and they are living lives of expectancy. They are expecting both to celebrate what God did thousands of years earlier and they are expected to see what is God up to now. And so this is the situation. This is the context. And in the very middle of that, of course, we have our story today. One of the interesting things to observe about how it is that we might be more open to where God is at work is seeing exactly how Mark tells this particular story. I don't know if you noticed it, but it's a strange telling. Mark spends an inordinate amount of time talking about this dumb donkey. It reminded me a little bit, maybe you have people like this in your lives, maybe you know someone who, who, who tells stories but gets really caught up in the details that don't seem to actually matter. Do you ever have that? It's like, all right, okay, oh, I gotta tell you, this is so good. Okay, so it was, it was Monday. No, no, wait, it was Tuesday. No, I'm sorry, it was, it was Wednesday. I had dry cleaning that I was taking in. It must have been Monday. Oh, yes, it was Monday. And then they continued to say, okay, and there I was. I was at 116th in Michigan. No. No, wait. It was, where is that Kroger? 106th in Michigan. It was 106th in Michigan. And they... 96th. It was 96th in Michigan. And you get to the point where you're like, <laughs> just tell the story. Do any of you have people like that in your life? Maybe not. Maybe it's just me. And you just, just get to the, what's the main point? Is this the main 
point. And this is what Mark does. You know, as we read the story, you think, you know what most important, of course, it's the whole, you know, palms or branches and cloaks. I mean, this is the exciting part. But when you listen to Mark, what's he do? He's like, okay, you know, here's what I want you to do. He decides to tell all of them. As you enter into it, you will find there a colt that has never been written. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this. The Lord needs it and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away. Now he could have just said, this is exactly what the disciples did, but he does it. He goes, oh, they went away and they found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. And as they were untying it, some of the bystanders did say to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said and they allowed them to take it. So they brought the colt to Jesus. All of these details, right? When you want to say, no, Mark, just get to the main point. Why spend literally count it more verses talking about this dadgum donkey than marching into Jerusalem. As Scott Hosey says, it's a little bit like reading a recipe. It's not that exciting. What do you want with the recipe? You want the finished product, right? Let's go right there. But no, that is not what Mark does. He spends all of this time talking about these needless details about a donkey. Now, there are some who would suggest, well, this is because Mark wants us to see what a miracle it is, but there's no sign that it actually is a miracle. It could be a miracle, but it also could be that Jesus had already prearranged these things. Some would say, well, yeah, but what he's wanting to do is show us how it connects with the Old Testament, perhaps, and yet there's no explicit, other gospel writers make it more explicit, there's no explicit connection with this actual, with the actual Old Testament rendering. It seems quite odd. But then, but then we are reminded of what we've talked about a lot in the Gospel of Luke, which is how Jesus is so often actually caught up, not in the spectacular, not in the highly special, not in the extraordinary, but in the incredibly small details of our Lives. And if you are preparing the way of the Lord and you are waiting to see Jesus only in those extraordinary moments, then you will miss him again and again and again. This is exactly what Tom Long says. Tom Long says, you know what? Here's the truth. A lot of times in our journey, we are simply donkey fetchers. It's just what we do. We go out and we are fetching donkeys. It's not all that exciting always. You know what? There are times when what you're doing is you're just in the nursery with a baby or two at the church and this is what it looks like for you to experience and be a part of what Jesus is doing. Sometimes it's just making brownies and taking it over to a neighbor who is new or who you know is struggling. Sometimes it's just spending uh, all night at a hospital in a waiting room with someone whose husband is having surgery. Sometimes it's just being on a church committee where for the first half of the meeting, you talk about what you did at the last meeting, and the second half of the meeting, you talk about what you should discuss at the next meeting. Sometimes it is just simply being about these small details of life that may not seem all of that interesting or exciting, and yet Jesus is found right there. One of the things that we'll see here in just a couple of weeks 
um, actually three weeks on the 23rd of this month is we're gonna have in the gym this thing called um, Super Servant Sunday. And it's gonna be full of opportunities for us to be able to hear more about what are those small things that we can be a part of that are a part of what God is doing. Sometimes it's writing a note uh, to a mission worker. Sometimes it may be doing something where you end up just taking out the trash. Sometimes it may be something like tutoring a child. It can be lots of different things. But here is the truth that all of those things, if we have the eyes to see, are a part of this larger mission of God. One of the things that Long goes on to say, he says, all of these small things are gathered into the great ark of Jesus's redemptive work in the world. Think about this. Think about if you're one of these disciples. We don't know which disciples they are. Uh, Many think that it's actually James or John because in the chapter before, you may remember this, James and John ask Jesus if they can please sit at his right and his left. Now, if you're Jesus and you know you have two people who are dealing with hubris, what do you ask them to go do? Go get a donkey. Now imagine this, you're three years in. Three years ago, you are an early adopter. You're like, I am following Jesus. This is gonna be incredible. He's gonna be the Messiah. Everything is gonna change. You are three years in and you have reached now the level of donkey fetcher. What would you think? How excited would you be? Would you really think, man, I am doing something for the kingdom of God. This is incredible. My children are going to be so mortified that I just did that. I mean, you this is the apex. And yet, here is also the truth which is that in just a few hours, because of the fact that they got this donkey, Jesus is gonna be on top of it and there are going to be people who are waving palms and who are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And within a week's time, right, they have been a part of this remarkable occasion where Jesus Christ himself will be resurrected from the dead and the whole world will have turned on its axis. But in that very moment, think about it, it from their perspective it looked like they were doing little else but trying to get manure out from in between their toes but when we are preparing the way of the lord and we are engaging in these small acts we have no idea of the way in which the lord is using all of these small things within the greater arc of what god is doing The second observation I want us to kind of consider, and I will admit, it may be stretching it a bit, but just bear with me. The second thing I want us to consider when it comes to how can we get into a position where we are really more aware of the presence of God, preparing the way of the Lord, is to just pay attention to the fact that when they went in and they got this donkey, they took him, and what did they say? They said, hey, we are going to return him. In other words, what did Jesus do? Jesus was borrowing the donkey. But what's fascinating to see about the life of Jesus is just how many things he was borrowing. 
I love what someone said. It's right here. It says this, Jesus was born in a borrowed place and laid in a borrowed manger. As he traveled, he had no place of his own to spend the night. He rode into the city on a borrowed donkey. He ate his final meal in a borrowed room. He was crucified on a borrowed cross. And when he died, somebody placed his body in a borrowed tomb. Jesus again and again was not Owning, was owning a remarkably small amount, but instead was just borrowing things here and here and here. And you may say to yourself, well, that's not really that big of a deal. Surely there's no point with this, except for the fact that, as we'll see here in just a few weeks, when we get uh, later on to Luke chapter 9, and he's talking to his disciples, and he's telling them to do this. Here's what he says. Take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and live leave from there. There is a whole sense of the importance of traveling lightly. And of course, you all know this passage after passage where Jesus talks about the dangers of wealth and just the great, the grace and the gratitude and the joy of not having so much stuff. There's this remarkable thing about simply traveling lightly that Jesus seemed to understand. Now, I, I realize it was a very different time and place Yet I have been wondering this week, what happens when we begin to live more freely? I love what one monk says. He says, if your closet is empty, there is more room for God. If your closet is empty, there is more room for God. Now, I am not suggesting that all of us have empty closets. But I am suggesting, I wonder how much we reflect and think about those things that we put in our closets or in our garages or in our property or whatever else it may be. What's fascinating is to think about how much easier, how much more freedom we might have if we had less stuff. John Mark Comer makes this point. He says, it's kind of interesting, you know, a lot of times, you know, you, you, you work, you think we would work so that we could have money so that then we could have more time, more freedom, more flexibility. This is what we really want. But what happens is we spend our time, we, we, we make money and then we buy stuff. And because of the fact that we buy all the stuff, then we have to work more, which takes more time, right? And so that we can have more stuff. And so then you end up actually having less freedom than what you were supposed to have because we just keep getting more things. Alan Fadling, he was here a couple years ago as one of our speakers. He says, the drive to possess is an engine for hurry. It's interesting. I, when we, we talk a lot here about trying to slow down, and I'm not sure how often we think about this, but it feels to me like it dovetails you know, sometimes when we talk about, oh, I just need to slow down, I'm just doing, oh, I'm just doing all these things, you know, and it's just so busy, and, and we think, well, we just need to, you know, uh, we, we, we need to stop doing so much. We need to get fewer things on our calendar, and perhaps that's right, but I wonder how many times when we are at the cash register, do we ever go to a cash register? How many times before you click something, do you ask yourself, by clicking on this, am I actually going to make myself busier because I need to have more money in order to buy this thing, which means I need to spend more time doing this thing to get the money to buy this thing. How often do we consider the fact that the less we have, it might also mean the more 
space and freedom and time that we have. The more time we might have to be present to God. The more time that we might have to be present to one another. The more time we might have to simply be able to be still because we don't have the burden of wondering, oh, I've got this debt or I've got to pay this thing or whatever else it may be. What would it look like to begin to consider before we start purchasing? What exactly are we buying? And what exactly is this actually costing us? There's one last observation that I want to make about this story and about how it helps us to experience the presence of God. I want us to just simply consider the significance of the fact that Jesus went on this journey and into Jerusalem and the significance of the fact that he did this for you. John Buchanan makes this great point that Jesus could easily have just stayed in the more serene area of the Sea of Galilee. When we were there last year on that trip to Israel, Scott's going to take another trip next year if you're interested in going. And it is amazing how serene, yes, there are storms from time to time in the Sea of Galilee, we know that. But compared to Jerusalem, it is remarkably peaceful. And Jesus could have easily decided to just simply stay there. It would have been much more secure much more comfortable than going into Jerusalem. Jesus could have remained safe by going town to town as a rabbi, but instead he chose to be a redeemer. And each time, each step that was taken by that donkey toward Jerusalem, I want you to realize it was a step for you and for me. It was a choice that he made each way each time he got closer to Jerusalem not just to that city but into our lives what I want you to see when it comes to this particular Palm Sunday and this passage is that there are few better demonstrations of what love actually looks like that love always always will cost you something and will force you to take risk and to be more vulnerable than you may want to be. When Jesus is marching into Jerusalem, he is saying, I will be less safe, less comfortable, more vulnerable. Why? Out of my love for you. There is no deep love without there also being discomfort and vulnerability. C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, The Four Loves, has this remarkable quote. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. It's a real pick-me-up. 
But I love that he doesn't mince words at all. You know, we've talked about this some before. It is a temptation that many of us have, and especially many of us who don't belong to a church. And that is to simply say, you know what? I'd love to follow Jesus. It's just, you know, the church. I just don't want to be in the church. You know, it's just full. We said this a couple weeks ago, hypocrites and just brokenness and all those things. But what I've begun to see even this week is the fact that a part of the reason it seems to me that is very likely why people would long to follow Jesus but not be on part of the church is because it is much safer, it is much more comfortable, it is much less vulnerable. Because when you do so, you can follow this kind of Jesus that you have up there. And, and that Jesus, you know, is not going to let you down. Everything will be just fine. Always full of hope and forgiveness and all those things. And you don't have to deal with the complexities of simply being with other people and the ways in which they cause us to struggle at times and the ways in which they don't live exactly as Jesus wished that they would live. And a few years ago when I preached on this passage, I talked about the fact that it's very easy for us to ridicule the people in Jerusalem who are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And, and then it seems many of them at least likely are saying, crucify him. It's very easy for us to mock them. But what I also realize is this, at least they were there. Because what we don't read about, what we don't see about, even from Mark, who likes to give a lot of extra details is he doesn't talk about the fact that there were plenty more who never even showed up. And they were much safer. They were much more comfortable. They didn't feel betrayed at all. They just got to sit back there in the safety of their houses or homes or wherever else it was that they were. But you see, following Jesus is not simply about staying safe. It is about following him literally into the heart's of one another. It is about following him in the very midst of pain and vulnerability. Because if you decide to stay away from that, you are right, you may protect yourself from being hurt or from your heart being broken, but you will also protect yourself from experiencing deep and meaningful love. I can assure you that there have been times without question when people in the body of Christ have disappointed me or have frustrated me or have hurt me. And it would be very easy for me to just focus on that and say, oh, we should just stay at home. This is no good. But I can also tell you that it pales in comparison to those moments when you begin to consider them, when I considered them in my own life, of when the body of Christ has been there in remarkable ways. I immediately began to think about when a Christian sister came over in the literal middle of the night to watch over our then one-year-old eldest child so that Megan and I could go to the hospital as we wrestled with the repercussions of a miscarriage that she had. Or a Christian brother many years ago who sat down with me and who had a really hard conversation and told me the truth about myself in ways I did not want to think about or see. It wasn't easy and yet it changed the trajectory of my life. Or those few several Christian men in my life, older Christian men who have been in many ways the spiritual and father mentors to me. Or the many primarily Christian sisters who have, who have really fed into the life of my children and allowed them to understand that they are loved, that they are known, that their name is known, and that God cares about them, and that they 
they care about them. If you begin to just go through your mind, person after person, of those within the church following Jesus, who though imperfect, have walked with us and helped us to experience true, deep, meaningful love. See, this is what happens when we follow Jesus into Jerusalem. This week, we will march behind Jesus, and I hope that you will spend some time simply asking in what ways are you preparing to see the Lord? Perhaps it will be simply by you getting out of the normal part of your life, of taking away 30 minutes or so of your normal every day, doing something to disrupt your life. Or perhaps it's simply when you're going about your daily life and these tasks that you just, oh, that you despise, that feel again like simply trying to get all the manure out from in between your toes, maybe you begin to see how what you are doing is a part of the larger arc of the kingdom of God. Or maybe it's simply by being more vulnerable or by ridding the clutter that keeps you from being able to experience Jesus more freely. Whatever it is, I hope and pray that we would this week march behind Jesus toward Jerusalem toward forgiveness and redemption and new life. And in so doing, might we see Jesus anew. May it be so. Amen. And let's pray.